heard from India because the institutions were destroyed. And so without those institutions, in, Buddhism couldn't survive. It depends on institutions because Buddhism really depends upon not just practice but also learning. And if you don't have those institutions where people can learn, the tradition is not going to survive. So the institution is as important as the teachers. We need both of them. So I just wanted to say a little more about Donna. Thank you very much, Susie, and thanks for all your help during this course. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, drop in for a second. Okay, Stephen, you want to hit that button? I think it'll. So we're going to, oh, I didn't put this thing in. All right, at the risk of opening up another conversation, (laughs) I'm going to ask if there are any questions, but we'll try to stay on task. I did say we're going to do a lot of questions, but I do want to say a few things first. But if there's some burning questions now, yes? Yes, that's great. Perfect. Exactly. It's, so the real, the key, one key term that I don't have a slide for here is actually, I have a related slide, is actually what's called zimba in Tibetan, or graha in Sanskrit and Pali too, I think. Uh, maybe not in Pali. But it means grasping. So uh, grasping to our thoughts grasping to the object as a good or a bad thing, grasping to our emotions. That's what we need to let go of. And another translation of that is fixation. So really the goal here is to release the fixation. So exactly that practice, you don't need to stop the thoughts, you, know, you don't need to change the thoughts, simply not become fixated on the thoughts. That already itself is really like the foundation of the practice. And that becomes wisdom. There's no focus then. There's no focus. But you're not lost. You're not spaced out either. Yeah, or, you know, entertained by thoughts. Oh, this is a nice movie. Or, you know, but not grasping. Okay. Uh, Maybe we'll move on then. So I wanted to say a little bit about... um, you know, my dinner with uh, Sharon and Joseph last night. Yay! So that was a lot of fun. We, uh, it was a great time. I had not seen... I had, uh, hadn't seen Joseph in quite a while, although I did a, a course for Tricycle and interviewed Joseph for that. And I think that was the last time I'd actually even communicated with Joseph uh, directly uh, over Zoom. How long ago? That was in 2019, I think. Not so long ago, but it felt like a long time. And then I used to see Sharon quite often in New York, 
but after my mother passed away, she lived in New York. I, and I still have brothers there, but it just we got to New York a little less, and you know, so biz, you know, schedules intervened, and then the pandemic came. So it was really great to see both of them, and uh, they're you know I admire them, but they're also good friends, and we had some great conversations. Uh, and we've got some things scheming. I'll tell you about that later. But I just wanted to say I didn't know about this book. So this is Sharon's late one of Sharon's late. She's got another one I think coming out soon too, which is a sort of more um, like uh, kind of like almost uh, a day by day kind of book. But uh, this book um, is looks like it could be actually appropriate to some of the stuff we were talking about in terms of changing the world, of activism, and things like that. I haven't had a chance to take a good look, but I uh, just wanted to mention it, give uh, Sharon a, a, a shout-out. Uh, part of what I also want to then talk about is how, when we're, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? What is this Buddhist philosophy thing? So these are some, some of those verses I gave you. And, you know, part of what we were talking about is you have all these different traditions. Is there something that's a core to them? So one possibility is something that's called the four seals. Sarva Sanskrita Dharmaha, Anityaha, Sarva Sasrava Dharmaha, Dukaha, Sarva Dharmaha, Anatmaha, Shantireva, Nirvanam. All compounded things are impermanent, all contaminated things have the nature of suffering, all things are selfless, nirvana is peace. So you might say, Oh, is this is this then? And then another key aspect of that is this famous phrase, which we, I mentioned to you yesterday, Ye dharma hitu prabhava hitum tisham tathagato kyavadat tisham chayo nirodaha evamvadi mahashramanaha The tathagata, meaning the Buddha, has stated the cause of those dharmas which have causes, and he has stated that which is their cessation, which is basically the, the first truth and the second truth, right? The dharmas that have causes in this case are the ones that are caught up in suffering which is all the, the, uh, all the compounded or conditioned things. And he has stated, what is their cessation? Thus speaks the great ascetic. So you could say, oh, is this the Buddhist creed? So it is an orthodoxy. And the answer to that would be no. Because there are Buddhist traditions that don't really quite, you know, remember, Nagarjuna says, this is conventional, not ultimate, actually. Causality, there is no real causality. Right? Causality... Is something that is from the perspective of our samsadic minds, actually, or of our conventional minds. We could talk about causality in a, when we transform samsara into the Buddha field, so to speak, but it's still conventional, actually. So, that, so I mean, does, would Nagarjuna then reject this? Not, in, not exactly, but he certainly wouldn't endorse it as an ultimate view. Would, uh, you know, ultimately, the Diamond Sutra says, the Buddha never taught anything to anybody anywhere at any time. He only seemed to do that from the standpoint of sentient beings. And they heard exactly what they needed to hear. So, uh, that, uh, it would be useful teaching at the university if I could just say, I'm teaching like the Buddha and just stay at home, you know. But no, that's not, that's the wrong interpretation of that. And then some of these, actually, there are. There was famously a school called the Puglavadans who maintained that there was a self that that was neither the same. There was a person that was neither the same as the aggregates nor different as the aggregates. And you'll find various kind of Buddhist philosophers and modern ones too who kind of say, "Oh, you know, the Buddha says there is a self, right?" I wouldn't endorse that view, 
That would seem to contradict one of the four seals, but famously a 14th, uh, 15th century, 15th century uh, Tibetan author said, when he, who was going through one of these many texts that are about these different philosophical schools, he said, oh, he sort of raised the question, well, are these guys then not Buddhists? And the answer is, they're not philosophically Buddhists, but they're still Buddhists. You know, they don't adhere to the four seals, and if we say that makes you a Buddhist philosopher, and if you reject that, then you're not really toeing the line. Maybe we could endorse that idea. But he says, but you can't say they're not part of the community. So what, what is kind of the baseline here, right? One thing is this very important idea that we don't, first of all, philosophy is, not, you don't just, it's, you can't say, well, you're not a Buddhist because you don't accept the Buddha's words, right? Whatever the Buddha says goes. That just doesn't work, right? This is from a Sanskrit text, but you know you find the very similar uh, ideas in uh, the Pali Canon, uh, like in in the context of the Kalama Sutta, for example. Oh, monks, just as wise persons accept gold only after cutting, polishing, and comparing it, so too you should accept my words after examining them, and not out of respect for me. And moreover, it's not like then, it's also even not like, oh, you know, the Buddha is going to save us. So if you disagree with, with something that the Buddha said, then, you know, you're like going to go to hell. And that's not true either, because how does the, the Buddha doesn't save us, we save ourselves. You know, uh, we, this is originally in Sanskrit, but we've lost the Sanskrit. The Tibetan translation is The sages do not, meaning the Buddhas, the Munis, do not wash away sins with water. They do not remove sufferings through the laying on of hands. They do not transfer the understanding of reality to others' minds. But by teaching the truth that is the nature of things, they liberate beings. Right? So, and they teach many different things. Right? To some beings they say one thing, to another being they say another thing. And Joseph and Sharon and I were talking about this, like, this is much more heavily thematized, or maybe not much more, it's, it's more heavily thematized in the Mahayana, but you find this also in, uh, you know, in the, in the Theravada tradition, which is that there's, you, certain people need certain kinds of teachings. And you need to be careful about that. Uh, Joseph spoke about a sutta in which somebody, one of the Buddha's disciples, uh, you know, sort of was charged with teaching someone how to do a meditation practice and mistakenly gave this person the wrong kind of object to meditate on, and the person killed themselves. So, which is terrible, but it is uh, a very dramatic way of saying, you know, it's not just like anyone can meditate on anything, or don't be, don't worry, you're... I just realized you might think, what did he teach us? Maybe we're, what's it going to do to me? Don't worry. Yes, the Buddha, well, I think there was a debate last night whether it was the Buddha or one of his disciples. I don't know the sutta. So, yeah, there was a thing. Was it the Buddha or not? So we didn't want to accuse him. Yes, exactly.
have met it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That was not the version we heard last night, but yeah, so same thing. Maybe it was even the Buddha himself, you know. The point being, people need different kinds of practices, and that's true for everybody. But it's not like there's the one true practice, and you've got to do that. And if you don't do the one true practice, you'll never get whatever it is you're trying to get, like nirvana. Right? So that's a very key thing to keep in mind. And also from whatever you're getting from what we've done, our time together here and the philosophy and the practices, you know, you need to see how that's going to work for you. Some aspects of it may, some aspects of it may, may not. And you need to find, be clear about like what's working and what's not working. It's not, it's not necessary for, you know, you to sort of say, which is the one true way? You'll find Buddhists who will talk like that. But but I won't, and I and I don't think Joseph or Sharon would either. So, how do you uh, then interpret like what is it? What is this about then? Well, here's a nice verse that's in both Sanskrit and in the Pali tradition. Sarvapapasyakaranam. This is the Sanskrit version. Kushalasya upasampada svachitta pariyavadanam etad buddhasya shasanam. Doing nothing negative, perfecting virtue purifying or transforming one's mind, this is the Buddhist teaching, right? So what's that mean? Basically, the bottom line is freedom from defilements. And, you know, Joseph sent me an interview that will be coming out recently, sort of talking about what do we say about Buddha nature? Can we say something like across all the traditions? And certainly one feature is freedom from defilements, which means not that just, you know, you think... Or I think, let's say, I think I have no anger. You know, I'm free from anger. And then, I don't know, somebody cuts in line in front of me and it's like, I'm free from anger. That wasn't anger. That was, you know, yeah, sure, whatever. You can deceive yourself all you want. It's not just your perception of your emotions. It's how you behave. So one of the key things here, actually, that's very important is the role of community here, which is... Your other Sangha members, but also, you know, even broader community. Like if you're, if, if your family or your friends or whatever are telling you, well, you did that nice meditation retreat and it sure made you into a jerk, you might want to reconsider the kind of practice you're doing. Okay? It shouldn't make you, you know, that doesn't mean there can't be ups and downs, but the general trend should be positive. Right? Like the average thing, I do remember. Some years ago, I hadn't seen Sogni Rinpoche, whom we'll talk about in a minute, in a few years. And uh, uh, we met at Garrison quite a while ago, but I can't remember when exactly. And he said, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And, you know, you're much less of a jerk than you used to be. And it's like, oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> you know, and uh, really, I was like, yeah, well, that is a good thing to hear. Because uh, that means that the practice is working, Right. So it's not exactly a quote, but it was essentially that. Yeah. So that's what we want to see. We want to see that progress. It's not just, it's, and it's not one zero. It's not on off, black white. It is a gradual thing. You'll have a little less clinging, a little less fixation, a little less, you know, attachment and aversion, and then hopefully a little, even more and more. You know, the decrease increases, as it were, right? And then more clarity, more compassion, more efficacy in, in 
dealing with difficult situations and helping others, right? So it's going to be hopefully mostly an upward trend. And if it's not an upward trend, you really just want to... How do you know that? Your own self, your own assessment, but also what other people are telling you, right? And hopefully, you know, you have some people who you can listen to, but hopefully also one doesn't find oneself in the situation that I've been working with some you know, with young people quite a lot. And there's a certain trend kind of in, in younger people right now that's a little worrying, which is if anyone says something like, you know, you're really kind of, kind of have a nasty way of thinking about these other people and you don't behave very nicely toward them, they'll say, well, you're toxic. And they'll, you know, just go, you know, like, you're a toxic person. I don't want to hear you tell me that I'm wrong. So uh, that's a little bit of a trend culturally right now, I would say. And you want to be, you want to be, but you know, there's reasons why that people are saying that, right? So that it's not just a. There's a whole cultural movement around noticing people who actually are being, in a sense, harmed. But on the other hand, we don't want to just not be able to listen to even our enemies when they tell us something that is useful. Right? Even people who are actually actively not being nice to us, they may still have something to teach us. That's a very challenging idea, but very important. So what do you think of yourself and what other people are telling you? That's a very important thing. The icing on the cake is you're not just decreasing your defilements, becoming ever more free of defilements, but you're also making, becoming more and more capable of helping others. I'm sorry, a defilement would be like those three poisons, confusion or ignorance, uh, craving or attachment, and aversion or dislike, and, and other states that are related to those. Okay? Yep. Obscurations is technically a different term. Yeah. Yes, that's right. They do do that. Yes, so that's so there are those. That's the word avarna, and there are two obscurations. One of them is about, and actually, I'm getting this from Joseph. So the the real term here is mala. So we could really go for both the kleshas and the obscurations. You could. It could I can tell you quickly. One of the, the one set of obscurations is the obscurations that uh, a, that come from negative mental states or kleshas, right? Those three root poisons. And then when you eliminate a certain level of ignorance, especially the ignorance about your own identity, you become free of those kinds of obscuration, uh, those kinds of, uh, of kleshas. And then the second obscuration is the obscuration to seeing the nature of reality completely. And then you need to have an understanding, according to, this is a Mahayana account, you need to have an understanding of emptiness. And that's what's really covering your Buddha nature. Right? The inability to, in a sense, see you, yourself and your world in a different way. Yep. Then you convert, then you 
Yeah, there's it's yeah, there's there can be moments of like important insight and transformation. And the tradition usually thematizes the moment of full enlightenment as being a particular point in time. But that's a long way away from most of us. You know, even the Tibetan tradition will emphasize the idea about attaining awakening in a single lifetime. We'll say a little more about that. But even then, you know, it's like it's not too helpful to be fixated on the moment of nirvana. Most of what's going to be happening for us is going to be in a more gradual process. But there can be moments, very important moments of insight and transition, so to speak. But for the most part, it, it, it's more helpful to think about this as a gradual process. Because a lot of that process can actually, they say once you get to a certain point, it doesn't really decay or, or you, know, you don't kind of have backsliding, so to speak. But before you get to that point, it can be a little up and down. So you can have a really powerful insight, but then for various reasons, you know, our deep habits and so on, some of the impact of that insight can decay. And, you know, you kind of have to refresh it. So it's not like just a straight, you know, it's not like boom. Even the, even the traditions that talk about sudden enlightenment all do gradual practices. So that's another important thing to remember, that the so-called sudden enlightenment traditions, they may say that, oh, you know, you don't really need to do anything. Just be the Buddha you already are. And then they say, by the way, could you make these offerings and, uh, you know, engage in uh, the perfection of giving and so on and so forth. So there's a famous saying that, and even in this, even the kind of tradition we've been talking about here, um, can't quite come up with the Tibetan, unfortunately, but uh, maybe after the break. But basically, uh, attributed to Padmasambhava, who's one of the most important teachers in the Dzogchen tradition, who's said to have come from India uh, to Tibet when Buddhism was first being established in Tibet. And he said, when basically, you know, on the cushion, so to speak, my, uh, my awareness is as vast as the sky. Like that sort of space-like awareness that we are, we're cultivating. In other words, it's not at all obstructed by concepts of good and bad, of good and evil, of what's to be accomplished and what's to be abandoned. I'm not trying to make anything happen in meditation. I'm not trying to stop anything in meditation. I'm not seeing anger as a klesha to be abandoned. I'm just seeing it as the nature of the mind itself. So in that context, ethical judgment... And those meditations actually is something that is contrary to the practice, right? But when you get off the cushion, then he says, but my, my, until that's fully realized, my ethical care is as finely grained as barley flour. If you've ever seen barley flour, Tibetan Sam, it's like really finely grained. Very, very, very fine, you know, finer than talc. So what that's saying is there's a kind of practice where we release all of those judgments, including our ethical judgments, which can be very sticky for us and which can be, you know, really trap us in certain kinds of identities and ideas about ourselves and other people. So we release all of that. But then when we're off the cushion, we return to our practice of ethics and we're presumably even better at it because we're not absolutizing it.
Okay, so all of this then goes to say that, you know, there's Joseph's book, One Dharma, and part of what we talked about, this is a great book, I highly recommend it. You know, there are ways in which the traditions, you know, really align with each other. Of course, there are ways they don't. I love how this book starts. I don't know if anyone remembers how the book starts, but Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, I had the pleasure of translating for a couple of times, and uh, the uh, uh, and he was an amazing Dzogchen teacher, one of the most important 20th century Dzogchen teachers, uh, and was a, a close to the lineage that I'm uh, most connected to. Uh, he met one time with a Zen teacher, and they were, I think maybe Korean Zen Sion, I'm not sure, but in any case, Zen, broadly speaking, Zen tradition. And, uh, you know, so they're talking about Dharma and like, and so in Zen, this whole thing about, it, there's this whole thing about Dharma combat, right, where you sort of challenge someone, you say, you know, who are you? And the idea here is it's not kind of an ordinary question, it's like, what's really going on, you know? Who are you really? Or, you know, what are you going to say that doesn't get trapped in concepts and thoughts? So the Zen teacher, you know, they're there, and they've met each other, and they're kind of, you know, talking for a little bit. So then the Zen teacher decides to do this, you know, picks up an orange and says, you know, what's this? And, and Yosha Ken Rinpoche turns to his translator after he gets the translation. He says, what, they don't have oranges where he's from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, it's like, yeah, like the traditions can sort of go, you know, ships passing in the night. But this kind of thing actually is everyone is going to be together on, right? And that's part of the one Dharma. But it's more than that. There are ways in which the practices we've been doing here definitely align with aspects even of the Vipassana tradition, right? Not all, not all styles, but like Thai forest style, the style that we find, for example, in uh, Sayada Utejaniya from Burma, there are going to be styles that kind of overlap. So it's so part of what we're talking about is maybe having an event at some point in the not too distant future, uh, maybe with Bante Analio also, and of course Sharon about bringing in some teachers from other traditions to kind of refresh this conversation, and uh, because the point of the one Dharma is not to turn everything into the same. Because obviously everyone's different and people need different practices, different approaches, different styles. But also to sort of talk about how, what are we, how do we overlap and also what differences are important, right? And why are they important? Okay, let me talk now about, having said that, I do want to, so some of you who, some people have asked me about, okay, how do I, if I want to kind of pursue more of this style, how can I do that? I'm going to talk about people who are specifically in this lineage that comes through Tuku Urgen Rinpoche. I didn't put his picture back up, but he's on the first slide. So this is Chukhi Nibun Rinpoche. This is actually at Garrison. Uh, it was taken, I think, pretty recently. Uh, I might even have been during the latest retreat. I'm not sure. But uh, so he, uh, he's the teacher I'm closest to. Uh, he's one of the. He's the eldest son of Tuku Urgen Rinpoche. And his website is dharmasun.org. He has an online program called Triple Excellence. Uh, there's a, a kind of group in New York City called the Dharma House. Uh, they are, uh, what's interesting about that group is there's a lot of Himalayan people in, in connected with it. So it's not just a Western Buddhist group. Uh, and and I'll, what I will say is that um, uh, 
part of what that means just in terms of his approach is he's, uh, in some ways, very traditional. So of the teachers I'm going to tell you about, he's probably the most traditional because he's still maybe, in some ways, most connected to that local group, to, to a certain region, actually. Uh, not that the other teachers aren't also, but he's the, maybe the most kind of uh, connected in that way. Uh, or the most serving those groups, perhaps. I'm not sure if that's fair, but in any case, it certainly is the most traditional. At the same time, he has created an academic institution in Kathmandu, where I'm going to teach because they lost a professor, and I, I'm going to I'm going to fill in for a month uh, on sabbatical. I don't know if that's the way professors are supposed to use their sabbatical, but called Rangju. What's that? I'm uh, going to be in Sweden for a week, and then I'm going on September 28th, all of October. In Bodonat, yeah. So Rangjun Yishi Institute is this uh, institute that has a very strong, actually, both bachelor's and master's program. And I've had, uh, I and other people like at Stanford and you know a number of top places have had students who went, got their master's there. So it's actually really a good academic program. I'm on the advisory board, so obviously biased. He leads various retreats and seminars and has some publications, not as much as some of his other brothers. So, Yonge Mingyur Rupache is his youngest brother, actually technically half-brother, and uh, his group is called, you can find him at teragar.org. They have a lot of online programs. Uh, uh, Mingyur Rupache has been uh, quite deliberate about trying to sort of um, work with Western audiences, and so some of his program, so his program will look different than uh, Chicken Yibaterbache's program in that regard. And, and I think this is great because you kind of want different styles for different people, right? So they, even though they're all in the same lineage and they all have the same father and have received transmission from their father and teachings from their father, they kind of do it in slightly different ways, right? So Mingyu Rupache, for example, is very systematic. He's really like systematicity. Yeah, and their ball, the Tibetan tradition in general tends to be systematic, but he's got a more like step-by-step approach in general, I would say. They both do, but he perhaps more. Rinpoche's publications are a bit more widely available, Mingyur Rinpoche's publications. Rinpoche, by the means, means precious one, and it's a title that's used in various contexts, including for lamas who are said to be the reincarnations of previous people, which all of these guys are said to be. And again, he leads various retreats and seminars uh, and has a program in Kathmandu. Yes? Immersion, yeah. Um, I would say maybe check out one of the online programs and then... You know, because that is a way of being immersed without having to deal with the logistics. And they're very consistent. Uh, probably the most consistent one is the Triple Excellence Program. Very, very consistent. But you could look at both Teragar and, and Dharma. So that's Teragar and uh, org. the Triple Excellent. They both have quite like detailed day-by-day programs. I don't know if Tergar has day by day, but Triple Excellence has this whole like day by day by day by day. You do this in the morning, you do this in the night. They get together online, they talk, you know. So it, uh, and residential stuff is a little harder to do really long term. Um, you can do retreats. There are retreats, yeah. 
they do have people doing three-year retreats. There's a re uh, so Trichinibirubache uh, has people doing three-year retreats, which is a traditional thing in the Tibetan context. And he has a three-year retreat center in the Pyrenees, where people just started a three-year retreat. Mingyur Rinpoche is starting a new retreat center in um, in Portugal for a three-year retreat. But no, they're not Theravada. Yeah. So IMS is a great place to do immersed. You know, you can do longer retreats here too. Okay. So then Sognyur Rinpoche. Yes. A lama, some people just use the word lama kind of generically to mean anyone in robes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these guys are all wearing very similar robes, right? Uh, but these, Trigonim Rinpoche and Yongimingyur Rinpoche are monks. They are monks. So it's, not the same. so it's not the same. If you're a monk, you're not necessarily a lama, although some... Although people will use the term Lama for monks. It's a mistake, but they do it. Even people in Asia will do it sometimes. And if you're a, if you're a Lama, you're not necessarily a monk. So Lama is the translation of Guru. Guru in Sanskrit literally means heavy. That dude is really heavy, you know. And Lama means high. You know? Oh, he's really high. So, I mean, I don't know how those work, but... No. no, you do not have to be in robes to be a lama ever. You have vows, but you don't have you don't have monastic vows. In, in, lama is a word. Lama really means like your 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 guru. It's your highest teacher. There are other words that just mean teacher, like genla, which is almost like a pretty literally the same as sensei, that just means born before you. In, in, in Japanese, Genla means elder. So, you know, you're just a teacher. To, like, I would be called Genla, right? Uh, by, in a, by Tibetans, they'll call me Genla. Uh, they don't call me Lama, and I don't presume to call myself a Lama. So, uh, that's, uh, so Lama is really just for, like, people who are understood to be the gurus of individuals. I'm going to say more about that. Uh, so... These guys are lamas because they are, you know, have people who they are directly acting as the primary teacher for, what's called the root lama. Tsongyi uh, Rinpoche uh, is another of the sons of Tukurigen uh, Rinpoche, and he's a lay person. So he's a lay teacher. I think he did at one point have monastic vows, uh, um, novice vows, not full ordainment. He is a Lama. You can be a Lama. A monk is not necessarily a Lama, and a Lama is not necessarily a monk. Because the monk might not be a teacher, correct. They might be a teacher at a certain level, but they're not understood to be collecting disciples and guiding people directly. Right? And there are people who... People who refuse to do that, and, but then do it in secret, you know, so no one no, calls them a lama. So there actually is somebody's lama, but they're not publicly then. And that, you understand? But, you know, most monks are not lamas. Most lamas probably are monks, but not in this tradition. In this tradition, it's kind of probably 50-50, monk, not monk, in terms of... Uh, 
you know, who's a monk and not a monk, but still a lama. So, so Tsongjin Rinpoche has a family. And, uh, you know, some people like that, actually. He's also very innovative and, and works very, in very interesting ways with Westerners. And he spends most of his time in the West these days. Uh, the, uh, whereas Chukinim Rinpoche is really mostly in Nepal, in Kathmandu. And Yongim Rinpoche, I think, is kind of balanced. He also has a, a monastery in Kathmandu. So does Tsongjin Rinpoche. And he definitely goes there, but he's kind of more based, I think, in the U.S. Where was that thought of, that someone who is, you know, in theory, moving beyond desire is married and has, you know... Yeah. So, in Mahayana, your goal is not to move beyond desire. Your goal is to harness desire, to purify it, so that, because if you have no desire, you can't make, you can't remake the world. And uh, so, and actually, it's seen as an obstacle to like try to quash all of your desire. That's not a, that's not useful. Uh, one way to think about it is for the bodhisattva, for the you know, for this the strict kind of monk. Probably the main issue is desire. For the bodhisattva, the main issue is aversion. So if you're going to make a mistake as a bodhisattva. If you're going to be either really averse, if you, you don't want to be really, but if you're like, oh, I could either be averse in this situation or kind of, you know, enjoy it, enjoy it. Don't be averse. And uh, so and that becomes especially important in tantric practice. So it's the idea is not to, in Mahayana, precisely because, you, in a sense, you need a kind of desire to, you could think of compassion. There's a whole, there's a, a, a discussion in uh, uh, in the uh, one of Dharmakirti's works, where someone says, "If you are enlightened," they're talking about the Buddha, and he says, "Well, if the Buddha was enlightened and yet he had compassion, how, how could he be vitaraga, devoid of desire?" Which is something the Buddhists talk about in earlier Buddhism, and also other traditions talk about. Like to be really free, you had to be devoid of desire, and so. Um, uh, Dharmakirti says, uh, well, is compassion really desire? And the person says, yeah, compassion is desire because you're wishing, you want those people to be free of suffering. And Dharmakirti says, well, it's desire, but uh, it's not contaminated desire because it is not exaggerating its objects, it's not fixated, it sees those things as not ultimately real, it understands the interdependence of all things, and then the person says, but it's still desire, darn it. And Dharmakirti says, okay. <laughs> like you, yeah. Like, so, in other words, yeah, the Buddha has desire in the, form of, in the form of compassion. It's a wholesome desire, yes. But there are, you know, Buddhist traditions that will just say you can't, that's impossible. There are definitely Buddhists, yeah. You, uh, yeah, you, that's like, that's atapi, you can have ardor, but if that turns into raga, like desire, it's a little dance you have to do, no question. But yeah, there are traditions that say the, the thing, you just got to get any desire and you're in trouble. So uh, that's not Mahayana.
That is a very good conclusion. <laughs> I agree with that. And that's a good point. We should come back to that. And let me just talk about Pakjo, and then we should really mention the, that. So Pakjo Rinpoche is actually, so there was a fourth brother, but Chokling uh, uh, Rinpoche, but unfortunately he passed away. He was the second oldest brother, and he passed away uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. But this is uh, his oldest son, Pakjo Rinpoche, who was also uh, a lama, is a uh, younger, as you can see, this is a pretty recent photo. I say, I, it's a bit fuzzy because I couldn't find a, a good, a clear recent photo. This is when he was uh, giving a talk at Harvard, Harvard Divinity School not so long ago. He has samyainstitute.org. Again, various retreats and seminars. And he has a, a Dharma Center in upstate New York at Cooperstown called Samye Heritage. And he's also connected to Dharma House in New York. So both he and his uncle which is kind of they often coordinate some of their activities, and they live in the same kind of monastic area. But he's a layperson as well. Uh, he uh, uh, you know, has a wife and a couple of kids, and uh, his, um, uh, his other brother is actually uh, the reincarnation of another very famous lama, Diego Kenze Rinpoche. So it's a family with a lot of reincarnate lamas. It's like some people joke and say, it's the lama factory. But uh, it's a very, uh, a very sort of august family. So they're all, I mentioned all of them because they're all in the same lineage. But there are other people who are teaching in, uh, in this kind of style who are not in that specific lineage. Uh, but it would t- you know, if I go through everybody, it'll just take too long. So Mahamudra Dzogchen. Some people talk about just, they say, I'm a Dzogchen teacher. Some people say, that I'm a Mahamudra teacher. This lineage is deliberately both. In reality, pretty much everyone who teaches Mahamudra uses some Dzogchen, and everyone who teaches Dzogchen uses some Mahamudra. So they're actually really pretty connected now anyway. But this lineage is one that says very specifically, like, this is a combination. Uh, I would say that Nimba uh, Rinpoche is probably the most, of these guys, he's probably the most, well, I don't know, Tsogni Rinpoche also, but they're very different in style. Uh, Minga Rinpoche just emphasizes Mahamudra more. Uh, you know, the, my problem, just to be frank, is that, you know, I when I read Dzogchen texts, I read them in Tibetan, and I, and I don't usually have enough time to read the sort of books that are available in English. Uh, so I am not great at telling you which books to read. <laughs> I'm really sorry to say. Yeah, he does. They are more Mahmudra Dzogchen, but I don't think it's going to make a big difference, frankly, for your purposes. Uh, there are, I know some academic books on Dzogchen, and I can share that with you later if you want to know some academic ones. How do you spell yeah. Dzogchen? D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N. It's in the uh, first slide, too. D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N. Okay, so maybe we talk a little bit before we do... Ooh, what happened to those slides? Before, before we do this... Before we do this, let's talk a little bit about sort of, you know, we have these various teachers. Why is a teacher important? We're going to get to a more specific thing after the break about why teachers, what in this specific lineage, like what do you need a teacher for? 
But one of the things to think about is that when we, if we think about this bottom line and then the icing on the cake, which of course, for the Mahayana, you know, if you don't bake the cake, if you don't have icing on the cake, then you're not done yet, right? Uh, but you have to have this, right? Uh, the uh, is that we talked about the role of philosophy. What is the role? Of, now you've heard me blab. Tell me, what's what? Why do we do darshana? What's the role of philosophy? Anybody? Gives you a map. Get rid of erroneous ideas. Yeah, that's good. So you took the bait. So, uh, so you can come up with a philosophical. Ah, yeah. So remember. I think a number of people need to take a break. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back and talk about this after the break. Okay. Well, you can ask it now. Hola, so. Okay, here we go. Uh, so I want to now talk a little bit about, like, we're going to kind of circle back to what the role of philosophy is. So we'll pick up that conversation again. So uh, there are ways to be wrong, basically. And this model, this, for some reason, get, didn't copy-paste correctly. So sorry about the. It's a little hard to see. So you can basically have a distortion at the non-conceptual level, at the conceptual level, or at the conceptual level. And at the conceptual level, you can believe that concepts are perceptual or you can misidentify the object. So let's just go through that really quickly. When we say misidentify the object, right? We're thinking that... Uh, um, well, no, I'm sorry. The slides are messed up. Well, what happened to the slides? Jeez. Oh, I was started at the wrong one? Or... Oh, I see what happened. <laughs> Okay, this slide. I misidentified the object. We have to like. <laughs> All right, I'm trying to make this, this, that, unfortunately, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. So, is there a, no. That's right, can you see it? Right. It's very hard to see, isn't it? There, now you can see it. Okay, okay. Yes, my I'm a I'm a bit of a geek, including a bit of a power PowerPoint geek. Even my scientist friends ask me for help. Okay, so you can misidentify the object, right? You have a you have a uh, uh, perception, 
And then you think it's one thing, but it's actually something else. Okay? So, you're, for whatever reason, for example, maybe you lack the training to properly interpret this, or maybe there are certain conditions that make this incapable of producing the, the, the judgment that you're looking for. There's something that tricks you. So the, the standard example is the rope snake. You're walking along. It's dark. You're in a place where there often are snakes. And then, you know, uh, like last night walking home, uh, I didn't have a rope snake. I had like, oh, I had the kind of the opposite. I sort of thought, oh, what's that, uh, what's that weird, what's that weird like, you know, big tuft of, you know, uh, like grass doing in the middle of the road, like spiny grass. Do you know what it was? Porcupine. Big, really big porcupine just coming up the road here. And he's like, yeah, we negotiated things. It was okay. But uh, I thought of walking up that road without my flashlight on. And, and then I said, no, it's a little too dark. I'm so glad I did that. But anyway, so, so you know, I thought, oh, that's just uh, it's weird. Who left, you know, a bunch of, like, sticks sticking up in the middle of the road? And uh, so uh, it took me a minute. So likewise, you can have this, this the same kind of error, right? right? You see the snake, you see the rope, and you think, oh, it's a snake, but then it's actually a rope. So that's misconceptualizing, where the error is not, there's nothing per se wrong with this data, you just don't have, for whatever reason, it can't produce this, an accurate concept, right? You know, some other examples are, your, uh, you see a pillar, a, a classic example is there's a pillar on the hill, and you think, oh, is that a person up there, Right? You know, you have certain expectations and so on that prompt you to misidentify. But if you really look carefully, or maybe if you're a snake expert or, you know, a pillar expert, you look and say, that's a pillar, you know. Don't you recognize pillars, right? So that, that and the other person might say, oh, that's not a rope. I mean, that's not a snake, it's a rope, you know. So it, what that means is that it's, the problem is really at this level, Okay. Oh yeah. Yes. Can happen, and and of course, when you see the snake, which is not a snake, your body reacts very profoundly. So uh, yeah, it can have real impacts. Uh, so, this is where the, the other mistake we can make is, which you've already spoken about briefly, is thinking that this is like this. This is just the sheer, in a sense, apprehension. Uh, this is just that moment where, given your expectations and so on, this should have a circle on it. Uh, given your expectations and so on, uh, you know, when you have this interaction, you get a certain image. You haven't conceptualized that image as a snake or a rope or a blue circle or anything else. There's just this sheer apprehension. It's not a picture of reality, but it is still, right? It's not a picture of reality, but it is not yet conceptualized, okay? And then when we conceptualize it, we say, oh, you know, that's a table. And we think, 
what we're seeing directly is a table. We're not seeing a table directly. We're, con- we're thinking that this conceptualization is what we're actually seeing. And a table is a good example because can you see a table? No. You can't see a table. You can only see table parts. You can never see a whole table. Right? So, and that's true of basically all the visual objects we have. Like we always see parts of things. When our concepts are almost always about things that have been stuck together. And the one classic example is the gutta, actually. So that we think when we see this, we're seeing one thing. Oh, I just saw a gutta. So like we say, oh, you know, someone asks, what did you see? I saw a gutta. But actually you didn't see a gutta, right? You saw, you know, this surface and these reflections and so on. And then in the next moment you interpreted it as a gutta. So, there's one level of fabrication is the concept. Remember, the concept is always distorting because it's putting together things that are actually unique, right? And it's saying that this is a real thing in the world. And then it also, in, in, in general, in perception, because we're really conscious, fully conscious generally at this level, the additional kind of construction is we think that that the, what we're actually seeing is the whole table, in some sense. We're seeing a table, but we're not ever seeing a table. We're never ever seeing a gutter. Okay? So, but the concept comes first, you say? No, no, no. First you have, a non, first you have the non-conceptual image. You see table parts. And then, you, and that, you know, your image, your, your visual, how big you see. Like, exactly how large is this percept? That's a very interesting question. Right? But you somehow like select something in your visual field, and then you th- because of your training and habituation, oh, there's a table. But actually, you did not see a table. You saw some selection in your visual field, but we're so habituated to like seeing, calling it a table that we think we directly see a table. But first we had this non-conceptual input, and then, and input's not even a good word because it implies it's passive. It's not passive. This is an active process. And then we like just habitually label it. Yes? So um, you said that one of the reasons why you can have an error in the, and you can misidentify the object is because of uh, an error in the non-conception. We're going to get to that. Okay. I have a question. So yeah, that'll come. Hold my question. Yes, hold, my, hold your question because that's coming next. No, no, this is Dharmakirti. This is like, this is, you know, 5th, 6th, 7th century Buddhist philosophy. Yes, there are relationships. Yeah, but I mean, one of the big issues is around predictive coding, but if I talk talking about that, it's going to take a long time. So I'm not going to do that. But it doesn't exactly align with predictive coding stuff. But then again, some people have doubts about predictive coding that would be more supportive of this. The basic thing is, like, how really non-conceptual is that? And what does non-conceptual mean? So that's a, that's a big question. Okay, but it certainly aligns. In, in, in the scientists who've seen this model, they go, oh, oh, wow. You know, they're interested. Okay, um, so then you can also have a non-conceptual distortion. So the classic example is, like, you, have, you see a white conch, but because you have jaundice, it looks like this, yellow. 
And you know, when you actually talk to a doctor, they say, well, you know what, when you get jaundice, it really doesn't make your vision yellow perceptibly. But I can give you an example that is a really the same example. So what's the idea here, by the way, just to clarify? It's that even if you give a faithful report about what you're seeing, you will be wrong. Even if you give a faithful report about what you're seeing, you will be wrong. Okay? So, this is actually white, but to the person it looks yellow. That may turn out to be a kind of fallacious example, like it's not clear that that really happens with jaundice. But, so I got, uh, in, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when we were all in lockdown, in my, I was, uh, I do cycling, you know, I don't, anyone heard of Zwift? Any Zwifters in here? No. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay, so, uh, <coughs> you know, I was doing this indoor cycling stuff, and then, uh, you know, I got off my bike, and we had like this pegboard in the basement with like tools on it and so on, and I, my glove fell down, and I leaned down to pick up my glove, and I p- nearly poked my eye out, and it caused a cataract. And then, because I'm 62 years old, like, when I finally got this taken care of, you know, they, I first went to the doctor and said, eh, it's, you didn't tear your retina, it's going to be okay, probably, you know. And, like, it took me a long time to go to the hospital because I was worried, you know, what's going to happen. Middle of, it's like March of 2020, like late March. So uh, then eventually I, like, start to notice, oh, this, like, my vision's cloudy. So uh, I go to the doctor eventually, and they say, oh, you have a cataract from that injury, and we can find another one over here, no worries. So we'll, the insurance will be able to cover. I have now, I do not have natural lenses in my eyes. I used to wear glasses. I used to have really good vision when I was young, and then, like, exceptionally good vision. And then, but then by the time, you know, before this accident happened, I had, like, both near and far were quite bad, like 2070 or something like that. Really not good vision. So uh, they put in new lenses, and these are multifocal lenses. So it's amazing. Like, just in a couple of days, I had 2020 vision both near and far. It's really, like, amazing. But I see weird halos at night and angels float. By- no, I'm kidding. But- <laughs> so, uh, so, but they do them one at a time. And then, so I, so I got the first one in, and it's, you know, cloudy for a couple of days. And then I'm kind of looking, so comparing, okay, is it better? Is it starting? And I said, well, yeah, it's starting to get really clearer. And then I, then I sort of noticed, just happened to notice something, like, oh, this is weird. So I took a piece of white paper, and I closed, uh, I, I looked at it with my natural lens, and then I looked at it with my, my new lens. And this is what I saw. When I looked at the white piece of paper with my natural lens, right, I thought I was seeing white. Okay? That's what I thought, that's what I thought white was. All right? But then I looked at it with this, and that's what I saw. And I compared the colors, so when I looked with my natural lens, I was actually seeing this color, which I thought was white. And then I looked with this, and I compared, and I said, this is the approximate color I see with my natural lens that matches. So I took the white, and I gradually changed the color so that now my new lens looked the same as the color that I see with my natural lens. You understand? Okay, so, okay, so I, close, I, look at, I look at a white piece of paper, all right, with my natural lens. I see what I think is white, okay? And I remember the color. 
Then I open my other eye, the new lens, and it's a much brighter color. I can remember the color I just saw. And it's a much brighter, it's white. And so then I do it again, like, oh, okay, let me try to make the color with my natural, with my new lens, which is white, look like the color I remember when I look through my natural lens. Easy. You just remember, the, you look at a color. It's quite easy. You look at a color. You say, okay, I see that color. Now I'm going to look over, you know, I'm going to do this and try to make this color look like what I remember. Very easy. And so, yeah, like you, I was in Photoshop. And I, I was looking, now I was. No, 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 sorry. Okay. I can do that too, of course. <laughs> it's easy. Now I get it. I'm sorry. So I'm... <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. So you will maybe see... This. So I'll say more about that in a second. So, 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 so you can do it. You can check yourself now. So, so I took... So I noticed that. So then I took... I went on a screen in Photoshop... And I, sorry, that was very confusing. I, going too fast. I went on a screen in Photoshop and I said, okay, I'm going to look with this eye and I'm going to remember the color I see. Now I open this eye and it looks like a different color. It looks like this. And then I gradually change the color slider so that it looks like the, this color. And then I go back and forth until I say, okay, the color I remember looking here is now the same as this color when I opened my eye, right? So I had a white, a white portion of the screen that, you know, and then I try to align it like this. So then eventually, so with, this is the color that was the same when I looked with my, with the, of my new eye. You understand now? So in other words, I was walking around in a world this color. And then I asked my, went to my doctor and I said, oh, like, you know, I found this. And I even showed her this, you know, I said, isn't that amazing? He said, oh, yeah, like people come in and say God, I gotta repaint the house, you know. <laughs> like they, all the colors are brighter, and it's like everything looks so dingy, you know. Like I had no idea. So wait a minute, after you did that on Photoshop, yeah. What was your experience of the two eyes? So they, it flattens out when your both eyes are open. Your visual system just flattens out the difference. Yeah, and then of course when I got the second lens done, then it was all gone. Then everything was like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, exactly. So the point being that, you know, what I was calling white was actually to, to other people, younger, because this happens when you age, basically. It's quite a natural process when you're aging. So what I was calling white, like a young person would say, that's yellow. And I had no idea. So that's a non-perceptual error. Now, sometimes these non-perceptual errors are things that, you know, we know, like the bent stick, right? That non-perception, they put the stick in the water, because of the refraction, it looks bent. We know it's not, because we just had a straight stick, we know it didn't bend itself in the water, but if we give an honest report, so we know it's not bent, but, it, but if we honestly report on what we're seeing, we'd say the stick is bent, right? So, what's the main non-conceptual error in the traditions we've been talking about. So there's a kind of error. You might say that like imputing essences is really maybe a conceptual error. Like 
I, well, first level, I think there's a whole table. Mm-hmm. That's pre- quite clearly a conceptual error. And remember, concepts, remember what Nagarjuna has said? Karma and Klesha come from concepts. Right? So the, that, that's a concept, the table, right? Or the self, the person. So the error is not here, it's here. Next level. Oh, I think even the components of the table truly, objectively, independently exist. Is that perceptual? Do they just look that way to me? Or am I conceptualizing? Interesting question. Right? Very, like, in other words, you, do you remember that verse that Nagarjuna said, concepts, karma and klesha come from concepts. Concepts come from, from prapancha. So one interpretation of prapancha, remember that fabrication, yeah. is prapancha is like the reality habit, not at a conceptual level, but at a non-conceptual level. Like, we just feel that thing is real, we're not making it up in the sense we're not just misidentifying. We're accurately reporting on what we're experiencing, which is reality, objective reality. Okay? So that's an interesting That's probably the best interpretation. Nagarjuna is saying there's something about that comes before the concept that is built into the ignorant uh, perceptual system that just makes the world look real in a way that it isn't. But then for sure we can go to the next level and say what? Subject-object duality is a non-conceptual error. Right? The sense of the in-there-out-there is not a product of me thinking. It's given with the perceptual process. Okay? So part of what that means is how do you so what do you if you're going to if you're going to intervene then that means that what mahayana and by the way earlier buddhism arguably could you know you could see aspects of earlier buddhism which is saying this is that the problem actually like the the sense of of there being an absolute self of some kind it's certainly at this level but maybe it's also actually in some ways at this level more than just how we're conceptualizing things, you know, quite possibly. But in any case, very clearly, for this non-dual traditions, they're saying that not, the, the error of duality is a non-conceptual error, which means the point of intervention can't, isn't here. It's got to be here. What's an example of that, the error of just subjective object? If I tell you, let me, I'm over here and you're in there. So in the case of the, if we go back to this example, right? Yeah. Didn't matter how many times somebody said to me, it's white, you're seeing yellow, you're not seeing white. That wouldn't, I could believe them, and, and I did, but I, I mean, I proved it to myself, like, oh, I'm actually not in my, my old eye is seeing a yellow world, and I proved that to myself this way, but believing that didn't change it, still looked yellow. No matter how much I believed, how much I went through argumentation, there was, that was not going to fix this, the level, the error at this, at this level. Okay? Yes? Does meditation help us fix some of those errors, though? Like meditation and concentration, because you're 
So the the point of meditation is is actually to get from and I would say really for all the traditions is to get something that's the level of experience. All both of these are experience. You know, concepts are experience too. But meditation is really targeting the non-conceptual experience, okay? So uh, because at that level the illusion of self for example, yeah. Actually, not really, because okay. so one one version of it is that the sense of self. Let's just work with self for a second. The sense of self is a matter is a misinterpretation. It's like a rope snake. It's a misinterpretation of what the your actual perceptual content is. So then, to fix that, you need to actually primarily work at this level, but also this level, right? You see, oh. There, if I really observe correctly, there isn't any self. So, and then I use that to undo the incorrect perceptuality. Just like I look carefully and say, oh, it's a snake. And that helps me to correct, excuse me, oh, it's a rope. And that helps me to correct the belief that it's a snake. Okay? No. They're all... all they're also they're all, they're all constructions, yes. We are having effects at this side too. I would say with compassion in particular, both of them, loving kindness and compassion. Yes, you're definitely not. You're sort of changing because when, what you're doing. Remember, this whatever's going on up here your conditioning and so on, your expectations, that's going to change your perceptions. So, and it's going to change like what you're going to select in the, in, in the visual field, for example. So if you're like, if the whole, if your mind is really perfumed with loving kindness and compassion, then you're going to note it, you're going to literally see different things before even conceptualizing, you're going to see different things because of that. So that's why it's so important. That's why in the practice even when we're going to let go of it, we start by perfuming the mind with compassion. Are you speaking to the idea that people see what they believe? If you believe, like two people seeing the same thing, same position, for example, yeah. and they see what they believe? Yeah, they, you could, yes, you could say that. In other words, you know, one sees a rope and one sees a snake. In that case, one's right and one's wrong. But you could say maybe one sees a, one, one sees a snake and, I don't know, one sees an electric cord. They're both wrong. But they had expectations that make them misinterpret their sensory data. So that's about sense of self. That, well, that's about, that's about the conceptual level, not this level. But if we say, okay, if we say that the air is perceptual, then in the case of the self, we would say that our ordinary perceptions already have a sense of self built into them before we conceptualize. So you can't just observe and see non-self. You actually have to learn how to see non-self. You have to change, you have to change this level. Right? So some versions of non-Mahayana will go in that direction. Some versions don't. Some versions say you can just observe and you will see non-self. And some people will say, no, you have to learn 
You have to unlearn. You actually basically have to train yourself conceptually to start to see things that you're currently not seeing non-conceptually. And so, a great example of that is non-duality. Yeah, that's an even bigger example. We're going to come back to that. But if just an example of this, let's say you have uh, you know, never grown tomato plants... And you have no idea what the sucker is, you know, the thing that's between. Yeah? yeah? And you just don't. And so literally, the, you go, you say to someone, can you go out and, you know, like, you know, fix this thing? They don't know the word, but arguably, they don't even see it. Like, they can't pick it out of their visual fields. Right? They just are incapable. So you have to be trained to see it. So if you don't get the training and you just look, you won't see it. If you're not taught, so this is why teachers are so important, because the teaching is not just conceptual. They have to check. Are you like, okay, you understand the argument, but is it really changing your perception? And do you need a different argument or a different practice? So if the error is here, just learning an argument or a new interpretation is not in itself enough, that new interpretation has to be of the kind that will change your actual experience, okay? Then the next problem here, here's the next one. Now let's go to duality, okay? Duality is, is a non-conceptual error, meaning if I just give an honest report of my perceptual experience, it's a, I will say there feels like there's a world out there and there's a, and there's a mind in here. Maybe I can get into a meditative state where that falls away, but let's just suppose, you know, I can't. And uh, we're, so there's a world out there, and there's a self in here, okay? And I'm just kind of like, or a mind or whatever. There's out there in there. It's object, subject, okay? If, so that means it's this kind of error. If I use, and so I'm, what, what, what kind of cognitions are happening here? Conceptual cognitions. Uh, what do concepts require in order for them to work? No, more basic. When I conceptualize, yeah, we have to do. We have to make false oneness. That's one thing. We project the thought into into the world, but also, most importantly, why do we make concepts? To survive, which means it's a self-acting in the world, which means concepts in our ordinary human concepts are always dualistic because they're about the self-acting in the world. So what that means is the only concepts you have are dualistic concepts. And you're trying to remove, but you're trying to remove the duality. Do you understand? So you're in a kind of hard place, right? Because you, everything you say is reinforcing duality because you're saying it. Yes. Everything you think is reinforcing duality because you're thinking it. You're in, you're in the box and there's just everything you, anytime you use more concepts, you're just reinforcing duality. Anytime you focus on something, well, I'm just going to see it for what it is. You're, using, you're doing more duality. So what it kinds of is there what could you possibly do? Well, one way you could do this is you could use a very special kind of philosophical analysis whose 
that very special kind that does not prove anything. Because if it proves something, it proves a concept which just reinforces duality. So it has to be a very special kind of philosophical approach that undo, undoes everything. That's not philosophical. Koans aren't, aren't philosophical. Yeah, we'll come to that in a second. So you need a technique, a philosophical technique, where philosophy is used to undo philosophy. You have a very specific kind of philosophy. You have a view that undoes all views, including itself. Okay, does that sound familiar? Like Nagarjuna, right? But especially Nagarjuna, not just Nagarjuna, because you need the insight that the fundamental problem is duality. So you need Yogacara and Nagarjuna. And that's, in fact, what you have when Mahamudra emerges in late India, right? It's a combination of those two, okay? So you have a kind of philosophical approach, a style of analysis that teaches you to, to basi- that basically puts you in a place where like, you just can't think anymore. It just undoes it. Okay. Another way you could do this is you could do a physiological induction. Okay. Now you, could, you can have a combination of these two which is you get somebody in a state with philosophical analysis, or you can use language like koans, contradictory language. You can use concepts that are kind of very special concepts that uh, put the person in a place where they go, huh? And then you, then you like do something that enhances that state of, huh? Like you shout at them. Okay. So when you have a startle response, this is one of the techniques you have a st- we could do, but when you have, maybe, we'll see, you have a startle response, the startle response puts you in a very unique kind of place where you're not thinking. It's like, what's going on? You know, you're afraid, basically. It's like, where's the threat? And also, because you don't know where the threat is, it, it kind of goes everywhere. So that's why in, in the non-dual traditions, you know, in Tibet and in Zen, for in Shan, Zen, Xion, they use the shout. Right? You can so you can do techniques like that, but you could also you can also use specific so so the other thing you could do, so that's the, why the startle response, it puts you in a kind of not just a and also the philosophy, not only does it put you in a place where there aren't concepts, but if it's done properly, like What's empty? Meditate on empty, but what's emptiness? Is emptiness an object? No. So if it's done properly, so you have a, you have concepts, and you so you do the study, you get the wisdom from study, you get the wisdom from contemplation, and then you apply that in meditation, and very carefully the concepts put you in a state where thinking stops, but also there's no object to think about. And what happens if there's no object? No subject. So it can conceptually induce a non-conceptual state. Okay? Not easy. Let me, so, you know, this, it's not easy to use those concepts to put you in a non-conceptual, non-dual state. It, it, it is easier, comparatively, to put you in, to use concepts to put you in a non-conceptual state. We can, like, not that hard to get you to, in a place where you just can't think anymore. Right? 
and, but you're still dualistic. So we need a very special kind of con uh, uh, concept, approach, philosophy, analysis, that basically makes the object go poof. And there's nothing to think about, not even nothing, which means there can't be a subject either. Okay? So that's a very special kind of philosoph philosophical approach. Hard to do. Not everyone can do that, probably. So the other thing you could do is you can induce physiologically a state in which there are no concepts and there's no subject-object structure. So one version of that is the shout, right, and other techniques like that. Another version of that... Yes, someone is shouting at you. Causes a startle response. As who's not heard of a startle response before as a term? Startle, uh, but the startle response, like you shoot a gun, like even people who shoot guns a lot, they, they go, so it's a very distinctive thing, like your face squeezes up. You, it's got a very distinctive kind of muscular thing that happens in the face, and the body has, you know, you get elevated pulse and skin conductance and everything, like boom. Even people who shoot guns all the time, they have a little startle response. It's a very distinctive physiological thing. And then phenomenally, especially for people who are really startled, not when you're shooting a gun, it can a full-blown startle response just kind of wipes everything out. There you go. Just an instant. Really very short period of time. But for a very short period of time, you're like, ah? Huh? Okay? So, but the other thing is, and this is where Tantra comes in, is that you can manipulate. So Tantra has a theory. Uh, uh, I'm going to come back. I'm going to do... Okay. Tantra has a theory that there are energies running in the body and that those energies running in the body are uh, uh, basically are kind of... Your mind actually... So the Tantra has a theory of the stuff that is neither mind nor matter. And that's energy. They call it, uh, metaphorically they call it vayu or wind. So everything is made out of energy. The world and the mind, everything is energy. And you can learn to manipulate that energy. Our, uh, and so in the process of that manipulation, which is, can be very difficult and dangerous, but in the process of that manipulation, so this is, in a sense, maybe faster than that philosophical approach, but it's more risky, in the process of that manipulation, you can eventually learn how to induce a physiologically, physiologically induce, meaning by manipulating the energies, a non-conceptual, non-dual state. And the way you do that is you, uh, you produce a state that is a, uh, almost the same as death. Is this part Buddhism? Yes. <laughs> So you, this is Tibetan Buddhism. This is Vajrayana. A so Mahayana has a tantric version and a non-tantric version. Vajrayana is a form of Mahayana. Many people are confused about that. And Vajrayana is the tantric version of Mahayana. And the Tibetans practice both. So you can induce a, uh, uh, that state... And the way you do that is you, first of all, you have to, you basically have to, because your ordinary sense of who you are is not as a beautiful goddess, for example. This is the goddess Tara. 
but instead, like I'm this, you know, uh, this Joe Schmo, like you know, this guy's got this and that, drives a Prius, you know, whatever. Like you're, you've got you've got your thing, right? And that thing is a pattern of the flow of your energies. In other words, your en- that's your karma, actually, right? So the energies are flowing in a particular way. That's your karma. So if you're going to redirect, if you're going to actually redirect the energy flows, it's like, you know, if you want to get the Colorado River to redirect it, you can't do it while it's in the Grand Canyon. You've got to, so in a sense, what you do is you kind of break down those patterns of those flows by becoming somebody else, which is specifically you become an enlightened being. And there are many different versions of that. One of them is like you meditate, you literally see yourself as this goddess, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman now, whether you think you're a man or a woman now, right? You see yourself as a goddess inside of a palace. So this is a mandala. A mandala is actually a two-dimensional drawing of a three-dimensional palace. I don't, do I have the palace? I don't think I have the image of the palace. I don't. But this, this is actually a floor plan of a palace. Like these are gates that are lying flat so you can see what they're, what's in the gates, but they're actually standing up like this. And uh, so you visualize yourself inside of a palace and everything has symbolism to it. All of these things represent it. Like the, uh, you see there are these urns, right? Two on each of the doors. Uh, these urns are, there are eight of them. They represent the Noble Eightfold Path. The four sides represent the four foci of mindfulness. Right? So when you're doing this practice, you're also remembering all of that symbolism. But the main thing is you try to become, you actually literally sort of become the deity. And when that's really strong, then you are able to actually manipulate the winds such that you can reproduce the death process. Right? The death process, which involves a dissolution of those energies into the heart center. Right? And so we've been studying a phenomenon called tuktam, in which people who do this then, so you do it before you die, right? And that you're inducing a non dual state, and you're meditating on that. But of course, you need to repeatedly do that. So it doesn't necessarily make you a Buddha in a longer term sense right away. Uh, but in the moment you're Buddha, it's just, you kind of, it snaps back, right? But, uh, so to speak. Uh, but then there's a phenomenon, and uh, i just quickly show you this, I guess. Or should I? I guess I'll show it to you. Uh, Is that like the egoic stuff that they talk about when you study that? Yes, that's the over, one of, yes. Drug-induced drug ego dissolution, D-I-E-D. Yeah, the, the, yes, uh, but the strongest one is 5-MeO-DMT for that, but it's not good for clinical purposes, probably. Um, so, oh, uh, that's me giving a talk about this phenomenon at Stanford, so you can find it on YouTube, okay? Uh, and here, this this is a, well-known Rinpoche, I forgot his name, uh, and this is a film about the research that we've been doing. So this 
uh, individual uh, uh, has been oh, at this point dead for six days, I think, five days. Clinically dead. But his body, does, there's no rigor mortis, there's no levor mortis, like pooling of the blood, there's no discoloration, but no decay. But yeah. Well, it, it, the temperature is, a, it's, we haven't found evidence of actually, they claim the heart center remains warm, but it's not infrared. It's not regular heat. If there's if people are perceiving warmth, it's not infrared. No, but we've yeah. The only paper we have on the, we've been studying this for like more than ten years, because the Dalai Lama and Richie Davidson decided they wanted to do this, and uh, the uh, the only paper we have is pretty recent. It's a null finding. There, there's no evidence of brain activity. Well, he'd have to die first. Oh, well, this practice is the practice you do when you're actually dead. Yes, so you do, in principle, you do this kind of, the practice that I'm talking about, where you are simulating this. You're, so some of these gentlemen, and they're mostly men, but that not only, but some of these practitioners remain in this state for weeks. And it's India. So things decay usually. And they don't decay. No, no, they're dead. They're clinically dead. There's no brain activity. There's no respiration. There's no heartbeat. No, no, no. They die naturally. They die naturally, but they sustain awareness. So the theory is they sustain awareness into the death process. And then when you reach that point, that's so the, what is this? The state of this is the simplest state of mind that one can be, the simplest state of consciousness in which that all that remains is empty luminosity. So it's much easier to see the, that nature of the mind, right, which eliminates ignorance, when you don't have all the other stuff going on. So you do that while you're alive, but it's never as clear as when you actually die. And that's so you, because you're going to another life. Or, you know, maybe you, maybe you, you will, because you're a bodhisattva, yeah, you will go to another life, maybe not in a human world, but that's the theory, okay? They don't do. They don't do clinically die when they do it. Although there's, it simulates the death process. So there's some debate about if you, if someone is really is an expert in this, they should respiration at least should cease for a little while. But there's a lot of controversy about how how far down do people get? Are people really getting all the way? You can watch my YouTube talk, but. We, do, we can't. We haven't figured it out yet. We tried with brainwaves and it didn't work. So all I, I wanted to show you that because what I, all I want to say is, well, you know, because I showed somebody else and then they're going to talk, so I might as well show you all. But, uh, but also, I think part of what it's saying is, is that there's a, uh, you know, they're serious about this stuff. And the idea is that the uh, in this tradition, like death is an opportunity. Okay, so it's a very powerful opportunity. So we're all we should stop soon. But let me we're not going to do all this. But let me just come back here. Where to go? Ba, 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 ba. Yes. Correct. 
Correct. No, he died naturally. So if you're a practitioner who's done that a lot while you're alive, then you try to do it when you actually die. He was doing the practice through his physical... Yes, while he was still alive. And then when he died, he did it, you know, full on, as it were. Right at the moment of death. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And he didn't, you know, do that to him. He was naturally dying. I think he had cancer. Yeah. But uh, you know, and he's quite elderly, as you can see. But he, uh, uh, you know, had been doing that practice before. That's the hype. That's, you know, what the tradition will say. You mean of working with these energies. Yes. And trying to basically induce something that's close to death. Why? Not just to get good at dying but specifically because you're trying to induce a state in which all that remains is just empty luminosity, and it's called the clear light. And it's part of everybody's death, part of everybody's death process. It's even part of falling asleep and waking up. Ah. Like something, it's not death, but you go through a very something that's very close to, it's very similar, it's falling asleep, waking up, Right? In certain other kinds of situations, you know, the reason you see talk of sexual practices in, in Tantra is that you can use sexual practices for that purpose, but that's very hard because it can't be ordinary. You can't be a person, you know, ordinary person doing it, so that's very difficult. And unfortunately, you know, when you go on the Internet and, like, type Tantra, you're not going to find people who are really doing this. So, And they don't, they really don't teach it. So for those of us who... Yes. Why not? When you do the meditations we're doing, when you're yes. doing things with our perceptual look backwards from your eyes, blah, 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 that falls into a sort of physiological induction? That to some extent is here, yes. You're, but actually we're mostly kind of using not philosophy, but other kinds of concepts and tricks. It's sort of a combination of this and this. But then this can also be a very effective method. So we'll be, I just want to say that the uh, one thing that we haven't done that's, you know, so basically compassion is a com- critical component of this style of practice. This really should say faith, devotion, and compassion. Uh, compassion is a critical component of this practice because that state also is a state that begins to kind of break down self and other, Right? So, do, so does a devotional state. And then if you especially are, you know, there's someone that you, are, that you really trust and that you can fully connect to, then you don't need to use the tantric version of this. You can use the non-tantric ver- version through a kind of a, a connecting with someone else's experience, that teacher's experience. So that it's not, so then in that case, the teacher, you know, you don't, there's no like uh, physical contact, but in the presence of someone who's in that state, you mix your mind with that person. Right? You're like, you sort of blend with their experience, and they're in that state, and so you're, by blending with their experience, you also participate in that state. And so that's also difficult. These, these are all difficult in different ways, right? You know, really being able to kind of let go of your own position and trusting someone that uh, enough to really like blend with them, right? Uh, and uh, you know, creating the right container for that. 
So part of what that means also is that there's a huge amount of attention to in the Tibetan tradition because all of these require kind of a safe container. They also require a lot of preparation. They also you need to deal with like issues that come up energetically. So that's why you know we have the shaking ah while we're doing that uh, that purification practice. There are many many other practices like that. But then there are also practices that are focused on you know making sure that you have the right motivation. So compassion practices. Uh, there are practices that are about you know uh, not only just compassion but even like pronunciation. You know making sure that one is not going to sort of get stuck in one's ordinary sense of, of life and be able to move beyond that. Practices that are about uh, um, you know, ethical practices that create the right kind of lifestyle. Uh, practices that are ritual practices that help to create a kind of sense of connection with the community and also that help to give one a certain type of sense of um, a structured experience that, again, provides a type of safety. The tradition will talk about these in somewhat different ways. I'm somewhat blending this with you know, what we know about how ritual operates in scientific and sociological contexts. Ritual is very powerful for creating community, for example, for altering identity, and so on. So, so the Tibetan tradition is going to be much more like, here's a tanka, right? Tankas, icon, this is a, of the historical Buddha in uh, turning the wheel of Dharma mode. Uh, so this is when he's giving his first teaching, right? Uh, so uh, there are no other... Oh, yeah, and here's... No, yeah, that's a, that's a Tibetan kind of-ish style. But we don't see... There happened to be a, a Tara in my room, but we saw that maybe around here. I'm sure there are some other... You know, so... There are many different kinds of tantric deities who are said to be fully enlightened, awakened beings, and they are like also like kind of paradigms that you follow. So you, when you visualize yourself as an enlightened being, maybe you do it as Tara, or maybe you do it as, you know, uh, Avalokiteshvara, the, the Bodhisattva compassion, or this or that. So this, so you know, just to know that it, this tradition tends to be much more. There's just a lot more kind of uh, ritual and. Um, uh, context-making in a very deliberate way. Uh, and I don't want you to be surprised if you decide I'm going to check some of this out. But of those different teachers, there are going to be different emphases about how much of that there is, right? So if you decide you want to you know, explore some of this, you can just check out some of these different teachers. And they're going to, have, they're going to be at different levels about how much they emphasize different kinds of things. And you know how much focus they are on on uh, sort of what Westerners need or not. All right. So you just uh, um, if you decide to move forward, it's good to know that there are different varieties and possibilities. Uh, and even though there is all of this emphasis upon the kind of creation of context, it's done in very different ways uh, by different people. Can I ask a very general question? Yeah, and then we'll stop. Within the Theravada. Yeah. Freeing notion at its base is impermanence. The Buddha would say, seeing impermanence, the the, the, the practitioner becomes dispassioned and being dispassioned, they're free. Okay. okay. So we have that. We have that loaded. Yeah. Here, here, the emphasis seems to be on, in some, one way or another, seeing the non-duality. Yes. Okay. So, do 
the Tibetans think of that as well, impermanence isn't enough, or it's a separate path, or this one's more efficient, or, you know, uh, I, I think, I, uh, I think the, uh, it will depend on who you talk to, but I think uh, an opinion I would have that I think a number of these teachers would share is, you could get it just from impermanence. It's entirely possible, but a lot of people might not. However, that doesn't mean that everyone should just dive into non-dual practice because this style may not work for people. Like those different options, you know, whether it's philosophy or physiological induction or you know, compassion, faith and devotion, like that may not work for people either. So it's not like there's just a single answer there. It really depends on where people are. But as, you know, the short version of it is um, that my own opinion is that you could the, the types of practices, let's say, that you could do here at IMS could also lead you to the realization of the non-dual nature of the mind. And, uh, the pract- and it's for some people, maybe even more effectively than these practices. But for many people, that won't be enough. Like impermanence in itself is not enough because they'll be having an object that is impermanent that they are knowing. And so that won't collapse the subject-object structure. But even in that, the perception of non-duality yeah. in of itself yes. is a tool to be come through. It is yes, not the end that's correct. Yeah. It is... It is uh, Some people will talk of, you know, they have a non-dual experience, therefore I've made Yeah, no, 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 no. And, and just one non-dual experience will have an impact, just like one authentic experience of impermanence will have an impact, but it certainly doesn't like, you know, turn you into a Buddha. In the moment, that you know, you'll see here in the tradition, in that moment you're a Buddha. But how long does it last? And, uh, you know, so it's not, yeah. The, you could say that, just like you could also say, I think in the, in the Theravada tradition, a Buddha constantly knows everything with the three characteristics, right? Meaning the Buddha is, sees impermanence all the time. A Buddha experiences all of the stuff of the mind and world, you know, the aggregates and so on, or an arhat even, experiences all of that as, you know, selfless and of the nature of suffering. So... Uh, those things are instrumental to attaining nirvana, but they're also the quality of a mind that is in nirvana, right? At least nirvana that's still within this world, meaning nirvana, what's called nirvana with the remainder. Uh, And so too, like the, 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 the Buddha mind in this tradition is a mind that is always fully has the primordial wakefulness of non-dual awareness, Right, always present. So it is also a feature of the goal, but it's also definitely the method, right? Okay. All righty then. So uh, why don't we? We're going to go. Let's go. Let's go to at eleven thirty to the Dharma Hall. And but let me just say, uh, I don't know if anyone needs to leave really fast or anything. So before we do that, if any of you are leaving. or even I can't make the last practice, just, you know, thank you very much for a great week of didactic stuff, and I'll thank you again at the end of the practice too, but, you know, thank you for being so attentive to this portion of our time together, 
Uh, it's been really wonderful to see how engaged you all have been, and that's inspired me, and I've also learned with you as we've tried to explore some of all of this. So uh, uh, the conceptual mind says thank you. Right? <laughs> then, we'll, then the non-conceptual mind will go say thank you too. <laughs> yeah, um, you're welcome, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.